today guys uh welcome back to the book and life podcast it is been my utter pleasure to have a one-off extra special podcast this uh, month for you and i will be doing these one-off special podcasts for um spotlight authors that pan mcmillan and some of the other companies have asked me to do and uh, I think that was a great sign for how well this podcast is doing and I, I can only thank all of you for that um, and for your continued support. So please, uh, please keep supporting the podcast so that we can spotlight more of these authors and help more of these authors really get their story out there. But before we uh, meet this spotlight author of the, of the month, I was hoping to read you the um the usual adverts that we have this advert is for the shadow book uh from the time guardian series and it's num- book number four by marianne curley the battle is over the war is won the prophecy complete but life can't just pick up where it left off for ethan struggling to cope with tragic loss at odds with friends in the guard he finds himself adrift jumping at shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there Blaming herself for the death, de- blaming herself for the goddess Lathena's death, Giselle swears revenge, and follow the immortal's plan for world domination. But Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice: should she follow her heart, or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave, as the guard and the order battle through the past and into an impossible future. Darkness looks around every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it Fred or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that Rosemary Rao, who is the crime, the Roman British crime writer, and has uh, made sure that her book from the Roman British crime series, The Price of Freedom, is having all of its um, royalties, or sorry, a portion of the royalties donated to the Ukraine crisis and her agent even donated her commission. So you got to understand how important um, this was for her to do. And um, I think it's amazing. So before we do anything else, I have to welcome the author of The Other Side of Night. He is an incredible gentleman to whom I had the most amazing conversation with and I am so delighted to share it with you. So uh, get comfortable. This is going to be a lovely podcast. It's going to fly by and you are not going to want to miss the things that I learned. So I guess we'll take it away. Guys, the person I'm about to introduce you to broke me down to tears with his novel. It was so not what I expected and I bow to his genius because it it is the most realistic novel I've read in such a long time. So, I must admit, I was so grateful when this guy agreed to come on. I uh, had not a clue if I was going to have the opportunity to talk to him. So, everybody, please give a warm welcome to Adam Hamdi. I hope I said that right. You did, thank you. Yeah, it's lovely to be with you here today, Kristen. <laughs> See, with the whole kind of uh, last name thing you'd be surprised how many times I get it wrong yeah, I don't know I'm if sure. it's <laughs> English versus American yeah gets me every time yeah so p- please just tell us about this new book because to be honest it's the most original idea I've seen in so long 
and it was so well put together. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Um, yeah, the other side of night was inspired by a, a question that um, our middle son Elliot asked while we were out walking in the Peak District, which is par partly where the book is uh, is set. And um, I can't really talk about the question without giving away spoilers. And I try and avoid any spoilers with this book because as much as anything, it's an experience. And, you know, it's not so much conceptual or plot-driven spoilers. It's more the emotional spoiler of the experience. If you go into it knowing as little as possible, you'll have the best time, I think. Um, but uh, anyway, Elliot asked this question uh, five years ago when he was, well, almost six years ago now, when he was eight. And it just got me thinking this would be a great concept for a novel. And I started working on it. Um, fleshed it out, first of all, as a short story, then a screenplay, then a novel. And finally wrote it during the um, summer of 2020, kind of at the tail end of lockdown and then into the, into the summer. And um, yeah, it was, you know, you say that it brought you to tears. I mean, I've read it probably more than 50 times and it still, you know, catches me, uh, get a lump in my throat. Um, and yeah, I wanted to do something that was challenging technically. Um, so there's, you know, every perspective in the book, first, second and third person, future, past, present, you know, it kind of plays around with, you know, technically it plays around with pretty much every um, writing convention there is. And in terms of form, you know, it deals with court transcripts, there's poetry. I mean, it just, it, I wanted to set myself a sort of real writing challenge. And luckily the way that the book, um, you know, what's demanded of the story and in order to build that kind of emotional engagement, it, 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 it naturally lent itself to those sort of multiple um, perspectives, multiple sort of timelines, uh, you know, so it, it didn't feel, at least to me, it didn't feel forced, it felt very natural. So that's kind of where the book came from and how it was born. And was it difficult for you to emotionally kind of get yourself into that place, considering we were all in lockdown and had all these rules and sort of suffocation of the news? Because everybody's television was on the news at the time. Did you find that, you know, that step difficult to get into? Um, uh, the, the kind of the emotional aspect of the book, I got the right tone and the right... Um, voice for it actually in 20 yeah it was early 2019 I think and I basically I met while I was walking at the Arvon Centre um, I met uh, in Shropshire I met um, a, a, a gentleman who was walking a dog and um, we just fell in beside each other in the woods and were, were chatting and it turned out that the dog had died uh, sorry it belonged to his daughter who died the previous week and it was now his dog and he was talking about the yeah. loss of his daughter and um, her passing and everything and uh, you know I, I tried to sort of involve him as best as you can a stranger um, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know the, the it was that perspective that emotion in, in you know that that I realized was what was going to unlock the book for me so um, the experience of writing during lockdown it was distracting um, what was going on um, but 
this is such an all-consuming book for me that I was able to kind of shut um, a lot of what was happening out and it was a, a useful distraction um, for me so it was quite a positive thing to be doing whilst there was so much yeah. uncertainty in the world yeah I've noticed that like some authors have had exceptional sort of abilities with lockdown in that regard because it was like a driven force for that creative power and then others are like oh my gosh no there's too many kids I've got to teach I've got to do class I've got to run here and run and it just was like they said it was like their whole world's crumbled because they couldn't put the kid to school close the door and do their thing it was just boom too much so yeah, yeah. we I mean we've got three children and they were obviously at home and uh um, you know that was that was a challenge but they're very good and the schools were good about providing them with things to do and we would have a kind of routine where we'd go for very long walks in the countryside and um, yeah you know it, it meant that they could be we'd spend a lot of time together as a family and they would be occupied but it, it, it also meant that you know I did manage to kind of carve out some time um, my, both my wife and I work so we, we had to you know we both work from home so we had to be quite disciplined about um, yeah, you know, doing that, and I, I wrote this um, in the evenings anyway. Uh, so, you know, kind of when the day had been done, um, mm -hmm. I would get to work on this. Um, and it's the kind of book that it didn't matter if I was tired or whatever. It would, you know, you get that energy when you uplift you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you'll know. So uh, it, uh, yeah, it, it uplifted me no matter what where I was. So it was, you know, good experience. And do you think that this sort of creative challenge and this emotional challenge will be something that you might venture into in the future? Or do you think, okay, I've done this, I don't want to try this again? No, I mean, I've, I've, um, I've actually written another standalone, which I'm just in the process of finishing, uh, you know, sort of final edits um, to, and then it will go to uh, my publishers to see what they think. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's another sort of thought-provoking um, book with you know that deals with big themes and um, I'd say a different set of emotions um, but yeah it's that kind of space um, and then I have another one that I've plotted out in outline so it's definitely something that I want yeah. to do again because I think I think you know I think it, the, the books that I've found most affecting in life are the ones that make you look at yourself and your relationships and the world a little yeah. bit differently or you know give you pause to question about what you know what you thought about things and how you perceive mm -hmm. your connection to other people and, and the world around you so I'm fascinated I mean I did a my second degree was in philosophy so I've always been interested in these big questions um, and I just I wasn't sure whether there was space for me to explore them in my books um, and I took a bit of a risk writing The Other Side of Night um, it was written outside of contract and I just did it um, yeah. on spec and, and you know it seems to have had a good response so I'm, you know, I'm going to keep going if I can I must admit writing outside of spec is when I think a lot of you know you do a lot of change and you do take a step way outside your comfort zone because something has gotten a hold of you and you cannot think of anything else to write and it's just so powerful and so overpowering 
How do you find sort of doing a novel one day and a screenplay the next? How do you balance that yourself? Um, I mean, I'm actually, I'm doing that at the moment. <laughs> um, so I'm doing a pilot for a TV show for a, a, an American producer and um, also uh, working on a novel at the moment. And um, it's, the, the, the trick that I learned years ago was actually to use music. So I write, oh, okay. yeah, and so I'll usually pick a track or um, uh, a tune, um, sometimes just one song that I'll listen to wow. on a loop. Um, and actually for the other side of night, I was listening to a lot of Bon Iver. Um, so, oh, okay. Yeah, so right. I, that that kind of connects with the book. Yeah. Honestly, so yeah. I get it. Actually yeah. in the book. So yeah, I listen to, I listen to a lot of that. and. That just gets you in the mood. Well, it certainly works for me. It get, got got me in the mood, and I could easily sort of slot into the tone and the um, yeah. the mindset of that piece of work. And I do that all the time. You know, I'll pick a track uh, or a mix or a song, and and that will be the what I'll listen to for sometimes for months and months. Um, so. I mean, I, I kind of get that because I, I myself, I use play tracks. Like I will do, if I know I'm going to work on something and it's going to take me a long time to do it, I'll do a playlist. Yeah. Or if I if I have a book that's maybe got a similar feel to it, I might reuse a playlist. Yeah. So I, I kind of understand that. And I've just done the step of being both a novelist and going into screenwriting. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm terrified the living heck out of me. Oh. I I. I got a I got representation just completely out of the blue and oh, congratulations and it was that yeah <laughs> still get used to the idea oh. um, so yeah it's, it kind of for me it was like I have that I have to go away and cleanse myself so that I'm not in the frame mind of writing a screenplay I have to almost like like okay go away clear clear it completely and then I can go back in and I can do the novel yeah. So that way I don't confuse the two, yeah. but when I tried to do it before, I kept kind of hitting, you know, hitting the barrier of, oh no, I'm supposed to be writing this way or, or that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they are very different in terms of what you can do and what you, you know, what the, the conventions and the structures are. And obviously in a screenplay, because you're not, um, voiceover is kind of out of fashion. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You you don't get that inner monologue that can you can use in novels to propel um, things along sometimes. Uh, so they they are um, quite different. But you know, I when I first started writing, I was really um, I would say uptight is probably a good word. You know, nervous because you're sort of worried that someone's going to take it all away from you. You know, for me, it was a passion. I had yeah. a great career. I had a great you know I was very successful made you know by by many measures people thought I was insane when I gave up um, you know well-paid uh, corporate work to become a struggling writer and so for me it's never been about money it's never been about um, sort of material success it's all about the joy of writing the joy of sharing a story of telling a story and um, you know when I first started I was quite uptight, the idea that someone was going to take that away from me, that I wasn't going to be able to write another book because it wouldn't be published or, you know. Yeah. And I realized probably four books in, actually, 
as long as you keep writing, as long as you keep trying, no one can ever take it away from you. You know, you may not get a traditional publisher, you may not get a conventional publisher, but you can self-publish. You can um, find kind of new ways to, to market and, and new ways to reach readers. So it was kind of empowering, and that meant that I felt more comfortable to experiment more, to try different things, to yeah, um, and relax into it a bit more. And I think through relaxation, you then get the freedom to... Um, express yourself more fully and what you were saying earlier about pushing yourself you know the best things coming from when you push yourself I remember watching an interview with David Bowie and he was saying exactly that never sit in your yeah. comfort zone always push yourself because that's when you'll produce your best work step out of your comfort zone start to feel very uncomfortable and exposed and that's when you'll you know kind of rise to the challenge yeah because for for me I I started writing wrestling, you know, just the, the weirdest out there form because it's not like screenplays, it's not like stage play. It is a, it's its own format. Yeah. It's completely its own form. So, you know, I went and I studied under this guy and dealt with a lot of sexism. And then I was like, okay, but it wasn't satisfying enough. That moment where you're like, that itch isn't being scratched. And I went and I wrote a novel, and then I had the backlash of all the wrestlers who'd known me, going, "Why are you romanticizing our, you know, that that huge sort of voice?" And and I didn't let it kill it. I didn't let it kill what I wanted to do, and I pushed sports romance that little bit further. So for me, like I always try and say, like every writer I have on here, I'm like, push yourself because that moment where you just take a step completely out of where the bound boundary lines are for yourself you'll mm. never believe what you find there and i've gone on and i'm i've worked in fantasy i've done I just did sci-fi which you know was a genre i never even considered before in my life but something came to me in covid time and i i went and i did it um but yeah it's I think the more, the kind of the older we're getting now in the writing world, the more that the readers are demanding completely original stuff. They don't just want a book to read and escape into. They want a book that they, I always say, accidentally learn from. Mm. Whether it's a change in their relationship, a change in the way that their lives are so that they can be content, so that they can be happy to see a new norm where it's not about what you have or the house you have or the job you have it's about what you emotionally have so it's so lovely to see somebody else like because i believe in giving that if you walk away from my book and you don't feel anything i have failed so for me it's if you walk away and that something is lingering in your head and it's making you question whatever that's me done my job right and it's lovely i i honestly i picked up yours and i thought thank goodness somebody else is understanding we need a little bit more in this day and age because we are competing against instant gratification with social media and we're fighting streaming and we're fighting <laughs> the media agglomerate and we're just these little writers in our homes all over the world trying to give people that little bit more than what they can get through that it's, it's fascinating that you say that because uh, 
been having these conversations with people in the industry and um, you know the way that sort of big publishers think about the business is very much in silos in niches so you're a romance writer yep. you're a thriller writer you know you're a sci-fi writer fantasy writer whatever it is and you're stuck in that genre you're stuck yeah. in the genre and what they love is if you have a huge success in a genre they'll sign you up for another three books that are pretty much the same book but with some changes some tweaks because they think well the readers that's what they want from you and that's mm -hmm. what we can sell and what typically then happens is the readers get the second book and they go hmm in fact my daughter was saying this about a, a, an author who I won't name saying you know book two was actually just a rewrite of book one and by the time I got to book three yeah. it was a rewrite of book. and so you see a lot of authors who kind of come out with a big book very successful on the debut and then they dwindle their readership dwindles and I'm convinced mm -hmm. it's because they're not giving readers something new. And readers, as you say, they're deluged with content, with material, whether it's screen or, um, you know, you're competing with, what is it now, five, six million published books that people can just download instantly, you know. So they have yep. to have a really good reason to say, I want that book. I want to read that. Yep. And so I think you have to give them something um, special. I think you're absolutely right. And I think... Increasing, I think it's the way that the industry is going to have to go if it wants to um, build authors Survive. who have sort of longevity. Yeah, and that's that is going to be key to the industry's survival as well. You you kind of you have to yeah. give people something that surprises, that entertains, and then also that, that informs. Yeah, and I think the hardest for me, the hardest I think genre right now for that longevity and for being able to keep that readership and grow the readership and keep your success needs to be considered as young adult because here's teenagers who don't have a very long attention span who want the next twilight or they want the next vampire diaries or you know the next divergence you know they don't they don't want to settle for the average love story or the average crime novel they want it to be like you know they want it to be that edge to it when when people read 13 reasons why they loved that because it went straight to the edge of ya and then didn't fall off and that's incredibly hard to skate that line so i take my hat off to that particular author but in adult section, we have it a little bit easier because we don't have that bigger fight that they do. And I keep trying to encourage people, like, I'm going into the young adult, and I think I must be absolutely mad. But going in there, it is a case of we have to educate our teenagers about what's healthy for them in a relationship situation, but we also have to teach them in, and I know this is not just for the states but there is more options to solving emotional situations than picking up a gun or picking up a knife it's not a case of who can come up with the best story anymore for that genre it's about can you come up with a great story but also teach them something that they don't know that they're being taught and that they can walk away feeling that book and feeling it so much that they have to talk about it and they have to have difficult conversations with other adults. Mm. Yeah. 
And to me, that's a terrifying genre if you take all that into consideration and you're not just trying to create the next breakout book mm. like Twilight. Yeah, no, I mean, Cause, it's, that's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Yeah. Um, I could see somebody like yourself actually being able to do it. Well, I, I'll be honest, <laughs> and she'll probably kill me for saying this, but my daughter, who's, uh, my daughter wrote a book... Um, during lockdown and she's always been and I'm, I'll, I'll, I will say this <laughs> because I'm her father but she genuinely is a very ta- she's always been a very talented storyteller and so I, she was she wanted to get a summer job in 2020 um, and obviously no one was hiring because of what was going on Not and so I, I said to her look yeah. I'll pay you what you would have earned in summer if you write a book and oh that's interesting yeah so um, and to my surprise I wasn't sure whether she was going to do it because it's a big undertaking for someone at the time she was 14 um, exactly yeah it's a big undertaking for someone and uh, but she's done it um, 86,000 words um, and she's just doing her second edit on it at the moment uh, and it'll be it, it, you know I've read the first draft it's really very good I mean she has a way with words that I'm envious of some of the phrases some of the lines <laughs> she's just amazing I just I wish you know I could pilfer it I would never do that, but she's, um, you know, she's, it's interesting to see. You're very proud. I'm very proud, but it's interesting to see how she's taken on YA as someone who's in that demographic. Area, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. So we'll we'll see what happens with it. But it's not, it's something that I, yeah, I'm not sure that I would go to yet. Um, I've got lots of... uh, it would be probably the biggest challenge you'll ever have taken sh- on sure, is if you did that. I'm sure I have tremendous respect for people who who write in that uh, in, in that um, genre. It's uh, it's terrifying. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. So I will you, definitely you, say that. Are you working on something on, in that that area at the moment? Then. Uh, yeah, I wasn't going to. I I kind of you know that way where you talk yourself out of something a lot so I I kept saying oh I'm not going to do it I'm not going to do it and then I signed with with Maggie Mayer and there was just this moment of well if I can go and sign my stuff to somebody and I can start to take that steps into the world of screenwriting why am I making excuses about YA because I've certainly read a lot of it and I started to do an idea of and I kind of feel bad because I started writing Test Zone before the Ukraine thing and it just sort of like hit in with that like what would it be like to be a teenager who's thrown into war who can't go to school who maybe has to step up and save their family and be the hero rather than relying on mum and dad to do it and what emotionally would that take to to go through that. Now, I, I'm on draft two, and I am terrified. <laughs> but the idea of it was, can we learn lessons in war in this day and age? And what what is the person that we can be after that, when they come out of that? When the war has ended and they have to go back to real life? 
So I decided I'll do a trilogy. And yeah, so <laughs> the terror is on now. That's fascinating. Um, have I haven't even shown it to anybody yet. Will it get signed to a big deal? Probably not. But it's my challenge to myself that I can do it. And once I've done it, that to me is the ultimate win. Whether it gets picked up or not, it doesn't matter to me. It's actually achieving it. It sounds um, sounds fascinating and obviously very topical because you've got three big wars going on in the world at the moment: Syria, Yemen, and Ukraine. Um, and so. And everybody forgets that there's a war in Taliban. You know, in in yeah, Afghanistan, Afghanistan with the yeah, Taliban. I mean, that's ongoing. Yeah, I mean they've yeah. been at war for about 170 years in one form or another. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's that's very topical, very cool. And I think, particularly when you're looking at the fact that there isn't a teenager that hasn't been affected with coronavirus. You know, you're looking, particularly here, they're talking about teenagers losing two years of their education, yeah. at least two years, mm. and how that's thrown everybody back, and how that maybe when the teenagers come out of high school, they won't be as prepared as maybe they would have been if this hadn't happened. So working in the school, because I I heard the call, like, because I was a a learning support teacher, they they started making these calls of, we really, really need help. And this was before Corona hit. Mm. And I I sort of, I went, all right, okay, I can help. And I went back to school. Wow, was that a leap back for me? I, I had not ever thought it would be such a change. And I helped, but I could see the damage it had on primary school children. And I thought, there's no way we're ever going to get them to where they should be. Mm. There's just no, no hope. There's kids there that were at risk, you know, high risk kids that didn't have the support, that basically spent two years playing because there was nobody there to sit them down and say, right, we've got to do math now, or we've got to do English, or no, you can't just sit on the the Game Boy for the next six hours. You actually have to do stuff. And even when I was in lockdown, I was actually teaching through the internet, and that was so hard. Like... Have you ever tried to keep a 14-year-old dyslexic kid interested in class over the internet? It's not like I was sitting next to her where I could nudge her and go, stop texting, you know? So it was... I was a duck out of water, but it reminded me the importance of doing YA Mm -hmm. and keeping that constant train of moving forward and getting us away from, you know what people think is acceptable relationships like twilight was not a good example of a a healthy relationship and you've seen and i don't know if you've ever dissected it but most of the major breakout ya novels don't have appropriate relationships in them yeah so yeah (laughs) and as a father to a little girl i'm sure you're going yeah yeah because it's, and it's every father's for fear for them to start dating. Yeah. Well, I, I'll be honest, it hasn't really been my 
worst fear because it, 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 um, it happens to everyone eventually, right? So yeah, eventually, it, yeah. It's, but you, you, all you can do, I think, is prepare them with those, um, with an understanding of what qualities to look for. Um, and the best way to do that is yeah. actually by example, is to be kind, be thoughtful, be considerate, so they get used to that as their expectation in life, that, you know, that they don't tolerate other forms of behavior um, in their... That's inappropriate, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, I completely get what you're saying. So, so many of the models of, uh, of relationships are, um, you know, there's a unhealthy power dynamic or some, you know, kind of whether it's mental or physical abuse or so you know something that isn't yeah. isn't appropriate now i understand that and i think by having conversations like this on the the sort of podcast i think it's gonna make writers reconsider you know okay we're doing a vampire love story how can we do this in an appropriate way mm. because a lot of teenagers they don't have invested parents and it's not the parents fault because they a lot of them have to go to work and they have to you know provide so they can't be around all the time they can't be teaching their children okay well this is correct and this isn't so they're left to social media they're left to books they're left to movies and tv series and i feel that's kind of where we have to take the mantle up because our world's not going to get better unless we're educating Mm -hmm. them and through literature and media and social media and what's televised and what's in features, that's up to us, in a way. Yeah. And we kind of have to then pick up the sword and lead the way. And I, I think that's a major change that I'm now seeing in a lot of attitudes. Mm. And I'm hoping that by, again, as having you on, we might be able to spread that message a bit wider and we might see the industry grow a little bit yeah, more. I mean, I've always been... You know, I was raised by a, a feminist and um, mixed race, and I grew up in a, you know, whether it was in London as a child or in Cairo, surrounded by people of all different races and religions, and yeah, I've always seen people as people, and and always thought of, you know, men and women as equal, and always tried to protect, you know, portray that in my fiction and often I'll get comments on you've written really strong female characters and so well what it's just you know all yep. the women I know in I my get that life too. are leaders they're they're you know strong individuals you know uh, you know sometimes stronger mm-hmm. than you know some of the men that I know it's like it's not and strength takes lots of different forms and so the idea that these yeah. norms of and they're conceptual norms because if people actually stop and look around in their lives and see who are the brave people they know, who are the strong people they know, you know, it, it's it's often women who have to endure um, the things that one would typically associate with strength or resolve, determination, and courage. Yeah. And so it's just, yeah, it, I've never understood the. Um, that books still get published now with what I would call very archaic, outdated portrayals of, you know, of gender, of, uh, you know, perceived roles in society, that you still get guys who define, you know, male authors in particular, who define women by their looks and their, you know, their appearance and everything. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's just, 
What's the point of that? It's, yeah. um, it's not the time. You know, there was never a time for it, but we're now so aware of these things that it's definitely not for now. Yeah. And, and particularly, I grew up in Shetland, so, you know, where Scotland is, Shetland's 50 years behind right. in their attitudes. Right. So I grew up in school where I was told, you probably won't be anything more than a wife. Right. You know, you're always going to need to be cared for. You're always going to need to be family-orientated. You're always going to need to know how to run your house. So I was a feminist. And that's my mother's fault because she kind of brought me up that way. So I rebelled. Then I said, to hell with this. <laughs> I'm going to be my own person. Yeah. And, you know, okay, I, I got rheumatoid arthritis when I was two and a half. So there was no other option for me but to be tough and to be, cur you know, to have courage and to be brave and to fight. And, yeah, I mean, it... And it used to baffle me when all the other girls would be like, oh, you know, like just that swooning whole old way of looking. And I would be literally sitting there chewing the inside of my mouth thinking, why are you acting like this? This is ridiculous. And to come to the mainland and then realize this isn't what the rest of the world's like. It's normal, you know changed my out view and it, and I really think that it made me want to be a writer because I was like I know books are a big thing in Shetland and Orkney and all these rural places because they don't have anything else to entertain them yeah social media is so far dis you know dis so far away from what their lives yeah. are like that they don't pay attention to it so for me, it was like, I need to try and find a way into TV and into film and into books to try and change the lingering misconceptions that's still there. Mm. And I wanted to change things like xenophobia. The amount of small rural towns, yeah. even the highlands and islands, it still exists. This is 2022. Mm. Why is this something that still exists? You know, like there's places in America where people have never left their hometowns, mm. so they have no other way of thinking. And in some places, it's really bad. They haven't even left their street, you know, except for maybe to the local hospital or the dentist or whatever. But it's always that little area. Mm. And I thought, are we going to end up in a society at some point where we are seeing an increase in xenophobia? We're seeing an increase in hate, hate crimes again. Is it going to go back to that? And the only way to keep everybody awake is to keep talking about it. And keep talking about it in as many different ways as we can. Mm. So I, I do kind of put you out there as one of the pillars of the people that is keeping that conversations going and keeping people awake to these scenarios. Because I think you've got such an easy way of writing it and such a relatable way of writing it. That I think it's almost like they're getting nudged, but they're not aware they're getting nudged. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean it's it's important. I've I've, I've always we moved around a lot as a you know when I was a kid, and so I would always be the outsider in the school. Maybe be there for a year, maybe three years. I think the longest school I was at was there for four years, and it always amazed me that people would find reasons not to like other kids. 
you know, kids would find reasons not to believe yeah. you're too tall, you're too short, you're too fat, you're, what, whatever it is, you haven't got the right trainers on, you haven't got the right clothes, you, 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 your parents too rich, crazy too stuff, correct, yeah. you know, and, and I've yeah. always been of the, and maybe it's because we've moved around so much, that I would always try and find reasons to like people. And so it's never been in my nature to look at someone's, you know, color of their skin, the religion, the background, whatever, you know, are they rich, are they poor? It's never been in my nature to, to do that. It's just look at the person. And the other thing that really bugs me and it kind of ties into what you were saying about, um, you know, being told that you're just going to be a wife and you're going to be cared for. There are too many people in life who will confine you. They'll try and prescribe mm -hmm. what you're capable of doing and what your um, destiny is, you know. And I think it's so important not to listen to those kind of people and to understand mm -hmm. that your potential is limited by your imagination and the work that you're prepared to put in. So, you, you, you know, you're not going to become, uh, you know, a hundred meter sprinter without decades of training and, the, you know, the kind of yep. physical attributes. But if you are told you'll never do it when you're the age of, five you'll never try you yep. know and so exactly you I, I there's too many people i think who are kind of carrying with them their baggage of their own upbringings their own failures maybe their own mm -hmm. um uh and I, I actually don't even think failure exists failure is really only just when a, a person gives up trying you know they stop trying themselves you know yeah. um but, you know, they come with their own baggage and they impose that on the people around them or on the next generation. And it's really, um, you know, I'm a great believer in the idea that anything's possible. If you apply enough work and have mm -hmm. enough talent, you can you can achieve anything. So I don't. Yeah, it's it's cycles. We're all having to be the people that changes and breaks the cycles. Mm. And whether it's, you know cycle of abuse or cycle of lack of education or whatever it is I feel bad because there's always the next generation that's coming behind us that has to do it because we at one point were that generation of well, we've got to break this cycle because that was what our parents had that was the baggage our parents had and it, it's weird I went out for, for lunch with my aunt and she always saw me as her sick little niece and I thought, oh, I'm never going to break this cycle with her. And she didn't. She saw me as a successful businesswoman that she was getting to have lunch with and she was excited to have lunch with. And to me, that was, that was like a woohoo moment because I broke that cycle that was in the family of knowing your place, yeah. knowing how to be with elders, knowing that you know you were subscribed to one pigeonhole and you couldn't be anything yeah. else and i keep teaching i was teaching that to the kids in youth club yeah it sucks you've got to be the one to break that cycle but it means that you're not passing that on to your mm. kids and that they don't have to be the ones to kind of say oh i have to break mom and dad's cycle or i have to carry the baggage you know it was like teaching them that it's okay to have baggage but it's what you do with that baggage mm. that's the important thing. Yeah. Like, I've learned that I can go to school and get an education, and I did. Came out with my standard grades, and I'm about to finish my bachelor's. So for me, I broke the cycle of negative thought that those teachers had in Shetland. 
and by doing this podcast and being very vocal, I hope that I'm breaking cycles for others in Shetland so that they know, you know, there's there's that opportunity out there. You just have to apply yourself and ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help because people out there actually do want to help you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's something that I think is very true. I've found... um, Particularly, write you know authors um, incredibly generous, incredibly generous. You go and talk to them at an event, bookshop or library event or a convention or you know even on social media, they're really generous with their time. And there's there's yeah. you know usually um, a willingness to offer a helping hand, advice, point you in the right direction or, or whatever. So yeah, totally. Never be afraid to ask for help. And to be honest. When I did this podcast, I thought I was insane because I'm like, who's going to want to come on and talk to me? Like, I'm, I've am i been an indie author for like 14 years. No one's going to, you know what I mean? And I couldn't believe that in a short space, I think it was three months, I had filled up to nearly a year of my podcast wow. pre-recorded. Wow. And I was in shock because it was like one author found out and then they would tell somebody else and then and it just spread through the tree. And then I started talking to publicists that I hadn't talked to in years. And that's where, you know, opportunities like you came along and and I had um, another author who's supposed to be coming on in a couple of weeks, Hank and Ness- Nesser. So it was like I'm breaking through that walls of let's normalize things let's start having conversations but let's actually make media fun for authors because i'm pretty sure you're like me and when you get told oh i you know this is your media schedule you probably secretly go oh no and you think here we go i'm gonna be bored for the next week and (laughs) you know because i'm gonna be answering the same questions over and over again and i thought well i want to do away with that i want it to be fun but I also want the listeners to come away with it and be like, oh my god, I know Adam now. Like, I know who this person is. He's not just this guy that, he, you know, I imagine sitting in a fancy house with servants running around and, you know, he's got this entire media team holding him up so that he can write. And But, I mean, it sounds crazy to us, but this is what people oh, think, you know? That would be good. <laughs> You know, and like, you know, it, it, it was insane when people said it to me because I stayed in a tiny two bedroom flat with my partner and I didn't have any of that. And I would think, where did they get these ideas yeah. from? So it's good to humanize yeah. ourselves and to show them that we do go to Asdos and Tesco's and <laughs> chase the kids and clean up yeah. and, you know, we're normal. Yeah. We're just normal uh, people. And I think that's something that I didn't realize. I mean, I I loved writing. I've always been writing ever since I was tiny. And um, But I never, never yeah. consider it as a career because to me, people, if you think about no. the authors that were big um, when I was growing up, they tended to be, you know, quite well off. It used to be something, it was a pursuit yeah. for the upper middle class or the upper class, which wasn't yeah. something that I ever thought, you know, somebody from an ordinary background would ever do. And I think it wasn't until, you know, probably in my teens when I realized there were people out there like Stephen King and who are just, you know, 
regular people who happen to be exceptional authors and are really good at what they do that it kind of clicked for me oh you know these you, you know you can actually write but by then I'd um, decided to become a lawyer and um, uh, and I think for a lot of kids of my particularly second generation immigrant um, children you'd seen your parents do yeah. really menial jobs and you didn't want that you wanted to go and earn money because you saw money as the Mm-hmm. The, 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 the kind of key the way out of those kind of very hard lifestyles um, which you know, my parents yeah. had and so um, you know that, that was the direction I went in and then it wasn't until like I said my, my, my um, you know I'm trying to think uh, my, my, well my father died and uh, that kind of I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, thank you, and and it just sort of made me reconsider everything that uh, that was important yeah. to me. And I thought I'm going to do what I love. Life's too short, and you know, kind yep. of chucked everything in and became a writer. It's weird you say that because the way that particularly my parents was, it was reliable, reliable, reliable. You've got to have a stable job. You've got to be in a stable industry. No, you can't go be an actress because you'll never make any money. Or you can't be a dancer. That doesn't make money. You need to have something that can pay for a house. And it was so weird you were saying that because the migrants into the UK had that way of thinking. But also the ones that lived in these rural small communities had the same way. Mm. And it was like, I went to be a midwife and realized, oh crap, my body can't do this. Otherwise I would have been a midwife and I probably still would have been a midwife. But there was that part of me that I always was writing. Classes to me were boring because I couldn't keep up and I needed to find a way to get through class without falling asleep. So I would write. I would write stories and I always have. So now being that writer, my fa- my parents still to this day will say, can you not get a de- dependable job? They can't help themselves. Yeah. But in my mind, I'm like, this is what I love. My husband has a dependable job, so I just say, well, he's got one. I don't really need one. And, you know, I can follow my my dreams and follow, you know, the way that I want to be. And I keep, I'm trying to encourage people to realize that that's an okay thing. You know, I'm trying to undo this idea that we can't all go for our dreams. This class system thing shouldn't exist anymore. It shouldn't, um, but it it does. And I think... uh, You know, I talk to so many people who have different dreams, and it's very mm-hmm. rare that people have the courage to to do it. Um, I, you know, I know one guy in particular yes. I'm thinking of who has, for the last twenty years, been going to leave his job in two years' time to mm-hmm. go and pursue his dream. Um, and you can just see his life. Again, you know, he gets enticed by the money and gets. Um, you know, promotions and all that sort of thing. And he just says, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to push it out for another couple of years. Going on for 20 years. So, you know, it, there's kind of fear and, and comfort that two yeah. things together, I think, lead people to not to pursue their dreams. And I think with what's happening in the world now with inflation and 
strikes and all this stuff, you know, it's going to be even harder for people to feel like they can go do their dreams because they're thinking, well, oh my god, I can't pay the electric bill this month or I can't pay the rent or the mortgage. There's so many things that stop us from actually just jumping, well, I what think. What I will say is, I'll be, I think this will be a period of great creativity because... Even though people have to keep their jobs and work, there's so much to say. You know, people typically in these times become angry, they become politicized, they become socially aware, they become frustrated, and they want to give voice to that. Whether it's music or film or books, you typically see a um, surge of creativity because you've got to have an outlet for the uh, emotions, yeah. and you either take to the street. Or you put them into song or, or on screen or in, in, on the page. Um, and so people may out there may be working a job, but they come home at night and they write angry, you know, because that's that's the only way of expressing um, what's happening in the world and the dissatisfaction yeah. and trying to make sense of it as, as well, you know, for yourself, never mind a reader. It's kind of like processing what, what on earth is going on and how did we get here. Um, so I, I think. And I think. Uh... I think a lot of people are going to realize that what we're going through wasn't isn't really necessary, and it, it is very political. It's very it's situations out with our control, yeah. well, I also, uh, and there there is no sense to be made no, of that. And I think also, in some ways, I think it can't be a surprise because we've seen the biggest divergence between rich and poor, um, certainly in modern history in the last few years you know if you look at yeah. the average ceo and what they're paid compared to what the average ceo was paid compared to the average worker in the 1950s it was like 14 times the average salary was what a ceo made back in the 1950s and now it's 380 times the average worker's salary you know yeah. it's sort of so the the gap has just become crazy when you have that kind of concentration mm -hmm. of wealth you run into these these sorts of uh, difficult situation yeah, so, yeah. um, and I, th I think a lot of people are upset because they're saying the wage can't go up but yet the bosses the CEOs their wages are going up 30% and I think there's this anger of well if you can afford to put your own wage up why can't you put ours yeah. up and I think there's that questioning mm. now of if we can't go up then neither should you yeah. and i agree with them mm. on that because you know it is awful watching the the fuel poverty particularly in my own island go up 96 percent in one year you know that to me should be raising alarm yeah, bells i mean these are basic things that you need to live you know if you can't heat your home mm -hmm. if you can't feed yourself you're, you know, you're... They already pay for, for higher yeah. gas, you know, and that gas is made in the yeah. islands. So you biggest refinery in Europe's the, there. Yeah. And then you see the the increase in food because the, there isn't that farming anymore in Shetland because the government killed yeah. it. So they have to get all their food shipped up to them. And there's the cost of the ferries, and then the chance that the ferries might not even make it into the islands because of climate change and the weather changing. So for me, that's just a represent. That's just one representation of how stupid things have become. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I, I, you know, 
from, from a sort of creative perspective, I think it's going to be an interesting time. Um, and even though people may have yeah. not got the freedom to leave their jobs and follow their dreams or whatever, I think there's going to be a lot to say. And so people will work thievering away at night or around there, you know, in the day if they're working nights. Um, and and I, I, I think historically we've always seen creativity rise in periods of recession and, and difficulty. So I think the same will be. And I, I think a year from now, we'll probably be talking about some of those books that's come yeah. out during this yeah. time and be like, well, look at, look at what it created creatively. Yeah. Like I could see us having that yeah, conversation in a year's yeah, time. My, my next yeah. book actually deals with this. It's about, it examines just how far things have gone in terms of the gap between rich and poor. And when, you know, it kind of poses the question, what life do we all deserve? You know, why do some people deserve yeah. this life of comfort and excess? And they have way more than they need. And other people who have done good with their lives, you know, have nothing. So, nothing, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting yeah, exactly. territory. Well, I look forward to being able to sit down and talk to you about mm -hmm. that, that. That book for certain. And I think, you know, well, you, the way that your mind works and how you unpick things and how you lay it out is so unique. There's very few voices like you in the world. And I think the more voices like yours that starts to come out, the more that we'll see good change. We'll see positive change happen. And so, yeah, I really look forward to that. And I really look forward to promoting that book to the listeners and the readers out well, thank here. Thank you very much, Christine. So now we get to know okay. Adam. This is, the, <laughs> this is the bit where everyone gets nervous, like, oh, no, I have to talk yeah. about myself. But I promise okay. it'll be fun. What's the book you've read most recently that you would say has stuck with you the most? The book that I've read most recently that stuck with most is probably um, Anthony Horowitz, A Twist, Twist of the Knife. Um, oh, it's okay. It's a series. And the reason it stuck with me is because I think it's just so brave as an author to put yourself, you know, he basically pairs, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he pa pairs himself with a detective. Um, and they mm -hmm. investigate uh, murders together. And I think it's so brave to put yourself or an avatar of yourself into a, into a book. And if you know him, um, yeah. it's really weird reading the book. And because, you know, Hawthorne, <laughs> the detective that he works with in the book, is really quite disparaging of him and he's self-deprecating about his yep. work. And I just think it's such a clever unsettling um, and unique perspective to um, to sort of to, to, to produce as a novel and you know Anthony's somebody who's a master of sort of structure and perspective and actually mm -hmm. yeah I found his work quite inspirational for the other side of night um, and yeah that's really it stuck with me that's what's it honestly sounds like a, a therapy session where he's allowed to let that negative out onto the page but then is also forced to ask himself why he thinks these things and i think that's probably a good way of you know emotionally progressing yeah, it probably is it's um yeah it's a unique uh read but it's also a great murder mystery you know it's a very um satisfying yeah. to read at that level but existentially it's an interesting read as well 
You know, and it's so funny that we're talking about people that are pushing the boundaries and things like that. Did you ever come across Catherine Cookson yes, when you were yeah. growing up? Yeah. Yeah, for me, like, that's... She's part of the reason I got into writing. Because she actually brought out things inequalities and things that she saw wrong in the class system and all that way back before we were having these conversations or even even aware of this stuff so for me like i call her my kick up the butt books like she reminds me well if she can do it you know she was dyslexic she had a blood disorder then what the hell is my excuse you know like I, I see that as, as my inspiration and I think I think as you kind of the way that you've progressed through your career I would say that you're becoming that sort of level of standard as she is you're getting to that place where you're going to be in the sort of conversation of the Catherine Cookson's you will be in that kind of bracket of political and social change but in a way that's not ramming it down people's throats, if that makes oh, sense. I, I hope so. I hope so. You know, that's that's my um, uh, objective is to make people think, and, and and actually, I try not to preach at all. It's just ask the question. Yeah. How you answer it is up to you. you know, but at least think about it. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, you're yeah, drawing I'm it out. To, yeah. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to give people pause and the space. You know, around because obviously a book is a book, right? There's so much that the reader fills in themselves mm-hmm. and with their imagination. So it's actually mm-hmm. just giving them space to think about these things and not necessarily to be preachy with it and to almost always think about you know the entertainment and the experience of reading. That's first and foremost, and then everything kind of slides in um, underneath that. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and I think if we're not sort of leaving the questions hanging then we're yeah. preaching we have to almost come up with a way of, of hanging it there and then saying well, well I'm not going to tell you the answer yeah, you've you got to you've yeah. got to come up with it yeah exactly yeah so if you had infinite time and nothing was going to you know make you have to put it down who would you sit and read and why wow. if you could read anything by if anybody I could read anything by anybody Wow, that's really. Yeah, I don't do softballs on this really show. <laughs> I tell you, um, I think there's. I read the first three books of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon, and. Right didn't manage to get through four, five, and six. And I think that they, that set of books informs so much of what our world is like. Because if you look at it socially, physically, you know, the conquering of of Mm -hmm. nations, the peoples, um, legally, the civil code that became the foundation of law, the religion, you know, Catholicism, Mm -hmm. Constantine, Mm -hmm. you know, so much of where we are now ties back to, um, the, Rome. to Rome, those, those uh, you know, those, those times. And so I think I'd like to finish <laughs> four, five, and six, but they're not the easiest books to read. It's, you know, no. not, uh, it's not archaic, but it is 
You've done well to get as yeah, far yeah, as you I, have. I, 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 I've set myself a challenge, but I never. I've, yeah, I think if I had infinite time, I'd probably go back and read four, five, and, and six. They they get me for heavy going. Um, so they do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who would you say um, the author would be, past or present, who's influenced, inspired, and made you excited about writing and books? You can have one author each if you want. So books, I mean, probably when I was a teenager, Stephen King um, was the one who, uh, mm -hmm. and it was actually a friend of mine, Wayne Goodham, who introduced me to his writing, and James Herbert at the same time, but Stephen King was just an exceptional storyteller for me, and, and the thing that I think people underestimate is so much of his books are a, a character, you know, they're not actually about the concept, they're not you know, shock and scare on every page. It's about drawing you in to the lives of these people. And that, I think, is what makes them work yeah. so well. In terms of writing, um, there are so many who inspire me. I mean, you know, like you, I'm sure, we, we read all the time because you, you just, you have to, really. I mean, I, I, I love reading, to. you know. Yeah. But um, I think, uh, you know, obviously I've talked about Anthony... Um, uh, David Mitchell, I think, is another author who um, I just admire the breadth and scope of the, of the novels that he writes and what he's trying to say and concepts and character. Details yeah, oriented. Really yeah. um, but also, I mean, you know, I've grown up, I've had such a, an eclectic. Um, it, I, I loved um, Chester Himes, you know, The Rage in Harlem and all, all those sort of books and. Uh, uh, John Wyndham. I mean, yeah. I'm this really, goes yeah, on. Yeah, really, uh, kind of diverse. Um, but I think if you say, said to me, Who, "What's my favorite book?" The Count of Monte Cristo, Alexander Dumas. Yeah, you know. That one gets said a yeah. lot on it's, this it's show. It does. Yeah. It's completely implausible. The thing that I struggle with is that they wouldn't recognize him after he comes back after 20 years or whatever. But that revenge mm -hmm. story, I think, is very satisfying. And it's interesting. It is, yeah. Psychologically, when they've done studies on babies who have no religious or social rules um, instilled in them, babies have a very strong sense of justice. They're, 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 it's, it's something we're in, in, innate within us. Inborn, this sense of fairness and justice. And I think that's what revenge mm. stories play to. For me, Count de Monte Cristo is the archetypal revenge story. And I think revenge plays so much in what we are now seeing on television, what we're reading in books. It is a huge driving force at the moment. And it seems to just be something that everybody's really gotten invested in. Whether it's that because we all want revenge on our situations or on the government or for the position we've been put in. I think it's just the a global yeah. feeling that's that's present there right now and we're we're all just tapping into it and i think we are actually all in tune with each other in that sense that we feed off each other's emotions and that's what creates these hotbeds of tension and outbreaks of war and things mm -hmm. like that i mean that's just my personal opinion but i feel like that that is something that we create as a society mm -hmm we feed off that energy and off each other's off each other's emotions. So when you go to a bookstore, 
where would you say you're drawn to most? Like, where's the first aisle that you have to go down? Um, I'll typically look at the new books, you know, what's come out, and um, ask. I'm the yeah, same, yep. And ask the um, bookseller what do they recommend. Because oh, yeah, okay. I'm not shy, I will always ask what they recommend, what um, what's come in recently that they've, you know, because often they'll read a lot of the books, not everything, but a lot of the books themselves, and so you can have quite interesting conversations. Yeah. Um, particularly if they know you, they know your, your face. So I'll typically go to the, um, the new releases and talk to them about what uh, has come out recently, and I'll, I'll buy anything from you know, a romance, poetry, or thrillers, and you know, anything, because actually what I like is, um, is, the, is the craft of writing. And, you know, so yeah. yeah, it doesn't, I don't necessarily have. I always get nervous of being recognized, <laughs> so I don't, I don't talk oh. to them because I'm like, oh no, I, I don't, I, it's that way where, for me, when I'm going into the bookstore, I want to be me, yeah. the reader, not me, but, the yeah. author. So I don't want to get 50 million questions about, well, what are you doing now? Are you ready? Do you know what I mean? I want it to just be that anonymous yeah. reader unless it's somebody i don't know and then and then i i give yeah. it a go um but you're talking about techniques one of the challenges i did when i i had a traditional um indie publisher and i decided i would take so how far could social love or our family love survive if betrayal was involved so i took twins and I had one twin publish the other one's journals. And one being famous and one not being famous. And what did that do to the dynamic of the family? What did that do to the father that kept all the secrets uh, from the children? And, you know, having estranged husbands involved. Like, adding to that tension so that every step you're going through that book, you're asking, well, how much more can mm. they take? How much do we actually live like that is kind of the underlining question. By the way, nobody's ever picked that question up, so I must have uh, slipped on that one. But I liked the idea of, well, how far can you push two family members? You know, is that twin bond so strong that no matter what the other one does, they will always come back to help the other twin? That's fascinating. I won't, yep. I won't, I won't and, ask and, you to answer that question because it would be a spoiler for your book, but that's a really fascinating question. So I shall leave that mm -hmm. one up to you because maybe you will pick yeah. up the answer and you'll be able yeah. to find the question answered. But I did that and I did it in a world where it was male-dominated. So you've got wrestling as a background because it was the most male-dominated industry mm -hmm. I could think of. And, you know, they're very good for their secrets. You would be surprised how much secrets is involved okay. in wrestling. And I thought that just seemed like the perfect place for that yeah. to occur. Um, and funnily enough, because I, I always, when I had to do media, I had to talk about it as a romance or a drama. I could never talk about the social yeah. aspects of it. So I always longed for a conversation like this where I could just actually dance into the socialness yeah. of it and why it felt important to me on that level to do it um you know and 
I, I got to see a lot of bonds in Shetland get tested. And I, I just always liked the idea of being able to play with it and just see how stretchy and bouncy that bond was. So. That sounds really fascinating. It's a, it's a good it's a it's a referral. You can always try it if if you're up yeah. for the up for the challenge. Has there ever been a book that you've picked up and you've kind of been left with this wonder of, of why you've gone there? Now the reason I ask this is I am trying to undo the negative approach a lot of readers and reviewers have got online at the moment. So by a- asking this question, I'm undoing a lot of this. So I mean. I'll answer that in two ways. The first is, you know, you see people saying one star review, this is the worst book ever, I don't understand it. And actually what you what you trying yep. to do, you're you're trying to inform other readers rather than, you know, star it and say, I hated it. You can just say, Well, this wasn't for me, but it might be for people who liked this yeah. kind of read or that kind of read or whatever. So mm-hmm. there's more. It's more about discernment and recommendation. You know, if you're into this, if you're into like fast-paced action thrillers, you're probably not going to respond brilliantly to the other side of night because it's a more thoughtful, slow read. And it's an emotional read. So, yeah. um, you know, I think that there is a way of of, of readers maybe taking on that role of recommendation or or otherwise that isn't quite as brutal for authors because I know authors that, that go on look at their reviews I, I just don't do it because it's not good for I don't do it either anymore I learned that lesson you, the hard you're way you're always going to get drawn it doesn't matter how many good reviews you've got you're always going to get drawn to the ones that you know you feel let down are negative and, yeah so I just don't do it, but I know authors who do, and they're absolutely devastated. And the thing about all of social media, mm-hmm. all of these things, people forget there's another human at the end. There is an author. There's somebody yeah. at the end of your social media screen saying, oh, I don't know, you know, whatever it is. There's another human being at the end. And you wouldn't behave like this if you saw them in person. At least I hope you wouldn't behave like this if you saw them in person. You know, so it's yeah. we've by putting these digital barriers between us, we've allowed ourselves to have um, more license for cruelty. And actually, look around the world; cruelty is rising everywhere. It's that lack of humanity. Yeah, everything. it is. So yeah. that's that's the one thing. But in terms of books that I regretted picking up, I was sent a book that I will not name, and I won't name the author or the publisher. Actually, I was sent two books, and they were in quick succession. And they were books that dealt, they were crime books, but they dealt with crimes against women in a way that mm-hmm. I thought had died out in the 1980s. Um, and they were hailed as yeah. sort of big books in 2021. And the portrayal of women throughout the books, it wasn't just the crimes, it was everything about them. I just had, I, 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 I think one I finished and the other one I couldn't. But I didn't, I couldn't, I'm usually quite generous with quotes and I'll try and support. Yeah, of course, yeah. I, I just couldn't because it, it, they were completely wrong. They sort of, they, they were, it was everything that I disagreed with in these books. And I, could, I couldn't actually believe that yeah. somebody, had, yeah. you know, that two different publishers had bought these two different books because they were so, they felt so outdated um, and, and out of time. And I think our attitudes are changing and there is writers that maybe are struggling Mm -hmm. to change with it. And I think we almost need a reminder 
and this question is good for that. It's a reminder to us to actually consider the other people. Now, I call people that, that attack others online as keyboard yeah. warriors. Because I've been at wrestling events where I know this person is the person that's doing the stuff yeah. online. And I can tell you that the wrestler they're going after every night is the wrestler that they're first in line to get a photo with. That to me makes no sense because they're only doing it to get attention yeah. from that wrestler. Yeah. And I find that hilarious yeah. to me. Because it's 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 not necessarily cruelty. It's a desire yeah. for attention. It's this new way of trying to get attention and that five minutes yeah. of fame. And I, I know from myself, I, I released Carla, which was this idea of a reader becoming an immortal. And it was done through the ultimate betrayal of her first love stabbing her and she dying but then coming back as this immortal and also it's a betrayal of his own self because it was a you know it was his first love too so you've got that kind of anguish between the two of them as it as this proceeds and then you've got sort of other layers of of different things in there and it was a ya and I did it as a slow burn, thinking, you know, I'll slow burn it and make it into something snappy at the end. And I got so many I couldn't finish. And I shouldn't have looked, and I don't look now, but I yeah. did then. And I realized that maybe my style needed to change if this was, like, the majority of the response. And it wasn't the majority of the response, it was just a small section. But it made me realize, okay, I'm going up against Marvel, for starters, with actually using real, not the fictional mythology, but the real yeah. mythology. And then on top of it, I'm also going up against the Masonic Lodge, and I'm going up against preconceptions of them. And so I almost made the Masonics the, the kind of the men that kept the secrets of the immortals. So that was kind of different because they were almost in a kind of, they were the, the wall between, you know, society and everyday life and the Norse gods and the secrets that they kept and the immortals that they abused. So it was very different. Um, and I kind of think back to this day, maybe I shouldn't have made it YA. I maybe should have had it as an adult um, mm. book. And that was my mistake. But I think you can learn from some of the bad stuff. I think if you if you're getting a large portion of bad res reviews, maybe it's simply because you just need to change your writing yeah. style yeah. a little bit. You know, I don't think we should totally, you know, ignore it completely. I think if there's a large number of them, maybe it's something we should yeah. consider and have a good mm. think about that. Um, but that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean that, that's a, that that's an interesting wrong, but... way of uh, looking at it because ultimately the readers are the customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the customers always right. I'm yeah, afraid you're right. I mean, I mean, how many jobs yeah, do no, we say that true. about? But we hardly ever actually apply yeah. it to this job, <laughs> where they actually are the reason that yeah. we're eating. You know, because the 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 people yeah, that are exactly. buying it. So, I I try. 
I've kind of learned this way of take the negatives and try and make as much positives out of the, yeah. those negatives as you can. You know, because it's not like the world's handing out positivity <laughs> all the time. So. so moving into the writing portion of the podcast, how did you go about creating the darker elements in your stories and, and in your... Like, how did you get into that mindset of, I need to write this incredibly emotional scene? How do I lock myself into that? Uh, I mean, so, I think with the, with the emotional stuff, I always project myself into those um, scenarios, and it's very easy for me with three kids okay. and uh, a wife who I love. I can, you know, sort of think about loss and imagine you know mm -hmm. I, can, I can put myself into that um, scenario when I'm writing uh, crime thrillers and you know action thrillers um, I grew up uh, with my best friend whose dad was a uh, convicted criminal and knew a lot oh, right. of criminals okay. um, a lot of London criminals big big uh, London crime families and so I, I grew up with a lot of these people around me um, I never you know my parents were, were as vanilla as it comes and we, we basically only got to know them because um, my parents and my friends um, parents we, they were in a, um, adjoining beds in hospital oh, and so we were born oh, on the same okay, day yeah. and that's how we got to know each other and it was just two completely different worlds colliding and um, you know so I got introduced to yeah. his world and the people that life and it was a lot of uh, London characters shall we say and so I've always kind of had that tapped into the kind of crime world um, and then with you know with action and espionage and that sort of stuff I just I talk to people and get introductions to people and I'm quite good at finding former spies people who are serving in the army that sort of thing and so I can get, you know garner authenticity and for me it's not so much about you know the kit and the gear and all that sort of stuff what does it feel like when you're about to go into a situation the james bond yeah, side like, is what does it feel yeah. like well, how do you feel when you're about to go and you know storm a building and there might be terrorists and there or it might be a family and what does what do those two outcomes look impact. like you know impact so it's, it's is, that yeah. sort of emotional side of things and when often when you hear these really tough guys who thought of you know, dramatic thoughts, it they carry some of the things they've seen, some of the things they've experienced for the rest of their lives. It's really, um, you know, these are quite profound experiences, and so it's, you know, it's trying to capture some of that and put it onto the page. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy because when I sort of decided to kind of expand, I took the stories of Shetland fishermen and the locals and I started putting together the, the Walls Manor series or, or Santa series which looks at the lives of the people that were serving on the bus mission and their whole jobs was to take every ordinary day ships and go out to sea and save people that had their ships sunk they were going across and they were taking refugees out of, of Denmark and Norway and even parts of Germany if they could mm. get in and they weren't just doing that they were dropping off spies and they were breaking sort of all these 
preconceptions. But they weren't just doing that. They still had to go out and fish to feed the community. Wow. You know, like that, that's, that's the part that everyone forgets. These boats weren't just for that. They had to use those boats mm. to feed the community. You're talking about women who had never been on a boat in their lives having to take rowing boats out into the North Sea, which yeah. was a dangerous sea, to catch fish so that their children didn't starve. Having to farm, having to take these prisoners of war, keep them, educate mm. them, and then have, you know, try and get them to work within the community to keep the community alive. So to me, like, you, you know, you're talking about talking to people. I, I'm somebody that could talk to anybody. And I am awful if I am your roommate in hospital because I want to know who this person is. I have got to share a room with you. And heck, you know, we're sharing a bathroom anyway. So it's not like you can yeah. have secrets, you know. So I, I have probably interrogated more people than I would care to admit. Um, in fact, my father-in-law says... The way to get world peace is to set me in front of the terrorists and they will uh, run back out the room promising to never, ever, ever step out of line again. Um, he also reckoned I would cause World War 4 and 5, never mind 3. You know, so to me, talking was always my thing. And if I couldn't go out and play and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do the normal mm -hmm. kid thing. So I spent so much time with adults. So I know how to connect with all different yeah. walks of life and uh, that a lot of my stuff comes from that comes from poor people that might be stuck in a room with me for two weeks or a month or a few hours but I guarantee you everybody that's met me does not forget me <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or that a bad thing funny. I will say this but everybody yeah. remembers me well, that's good you know, I was walking to, this is a perfect example, I was walking into the hospital, I hadn't been in in over a year, and six people stopped me from the front door to the door of my clinic and said, oh my god, I've not seen you, and then they would rattle off however long it was. And I thought, how much did I have to do to yeah. make an impression that they've they, carried yeah. for two years, yeah. three years, or yeah. whatever it is, wow. you know? But I think that's the author yeah. side of us because we're we're born yeah. curious. Well, you know, we yeah, have to find these it. things it out. It's a, it's a curiosity about people and the world around us. Yeah. Yeah, and I the the thing that I always ask British authors is, there is a lot of stories here in the UK that very soon we're gonna have to be the ones to tell because the people that did amazing things aren't gonna be alive to tell them. You know, so that's why when I do meet people, I'm like, do you know about this? Do you know about this mission? You know, is there a way we can keep this alive? Because I think people thought Britain was just fighting on the land and that we were fighting, you know, we were we were making our everything in the factories and women were doing so much. They actually don't know that a lot of the medical advances came from here. A lot of the surgical advances came from here. I mean, we were the number one triage, mm. you know, for for people with 
war wounds. We taught the Americans a lot of what we know. Because when they joined the wars, they were not as prepared as we were, I think. I would say they were less prepared than than what what we are. Do you think that with your time in Cairo that we might see you doing some stories there, you know, sort of representing what it was like for people over there during that uh, possibly. time? Possibly. I mean, I've, I've set a bit of Red Wolves, which is my second Scott Pierce book, um, takes place in Cairo, but not any great depth. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something... I've had a, a, a TV producer approached me before to say you know would mm-hmm. you like to you know could you do a series based on Cairo um, historical looking at the rise of Nasser and um, Sadat and um, of course yeah. and everything because it was it was a huge change oh, for them massive and you know my, my family you were, know my family were dispossessed so they were a very wealthy family my great-grandparents were extremely wealthy and they had everything seized by Nasser so in our family it's been a mixed uh, you get people who have very strong opinions one way or another whether the revolution was a good thing or a bad thing so um, uh, that sounds like a story yeah, coming from you it, I think I think you could do that justice and maybe yeah. let people see a different yeah, side no, of it, it. It's, a, it it's a fascinating part of the world and obviously it was a huge nexus point for the CIA um, you know British and American intelligence very active in Cairo course, yeah. in, the, in the sort of late 40s and early 50s so and beyond obviously it became a very key strategic city so um, yeah possibly um, at the moment you know and there was a lot of spy stuff that went on during that yeah. time in Cairo because I know from my my grandfather he was a merchant navy man so mm. he was everywhere you know whether it was in Africa or he was in Egypt or he got around he it wasn't one to sit around and do nothing. And even he said the amount of times they would have a spy on board that they were transporting yeah. to Cairo because they were trying to outdo yeah. Russia or whatever was was incredible. And, you know, to him, he found it magical there because there were so many different people that were in there at any given time. And even now, even though... The world's changed quite a bit. A lot of intelligence is actually kind of—it's a hot spot for sort of trading different intelligence and talking because it, they're less likely to mm. get caught there. It's easier for them to yeah, sort of hide no, that. Um, I don't know if you well, agree well, with I, me. I think absolutely. So historically, it's a in a real um, nexus point because it's you know it's Africa. It's where. The Middle East meets Europe, um, you know, it's mm-hmm. you know, obviously the kind of, it was the, uh, Egypt was the kind of leader in terms of making peace with Israel um, and a key yeah. sort of strategic partner for America, obviously the British and French influence. So yeah, I mean, historically it's been an absolutely fascinating place. And um, whether I'll tackle it at some point or not, I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's uh, w- there are tons of very interesting personal family stories. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it is a fast. So we'll, we'll all have to sit on uh, tender we'll hooks see. to see if we'll uh, see. if you take the leap. <laughs> Sometimes it's good though. Like 
I always say it's nice to kind of meet another author that mm. you can spitball with and you can see if that inspires yeah. something out of them. Um, I had uh, one author on, he's a crime writer from England, or he's at the borders between England and Scotland. And uh, he decided that I was such a unique person and I had gotten his juices flowing that he actually created a miniature Aww. character of myself and stuck it in the book um, as a kind of way to say thank you because he walked away with so many ideas in his mind and he ended up plotting, he said, for, for uh, quite quite a couple of weeks, I think it was, afterwards. So, And I was like, well, to me, what mattered out of that situation was that he went away with some yeah. good feelings and that, you know the juices mm. to be flowing in the way that they were so that he could then give something to his yeah. readers that was inspiring for him and it was a joy for him to write and, and, and love. So what would you say inspired you to write the genres that, you know, you've put your own voice to? Uh, so Pendulum, I think I wrote because I was having a lot of conversations with people and they were all the same they were kind of all about how the internet had changed our lives and no one had really talked about oh, yeah. whether we wanted that change or not it had just happened we'd been sort of steamrolled mm -hmm. as a society into accepting that we were now all connected to each other and that there was no regulation of content and that people could be exposed to um you know, the children in particular could be exposed to all kinds of inappropriate content, trolling, bullying, that you, you know, you never are yep. away from your computer or phone. There's no shutting off bullying at school. Um, you know, you take it home with you now. You can't close the door on it anymore. And so, yeah. you know, I had lots of conversations with people and the same themes kept coming up and I just thought, I should write a book about this because it's obviously touching a nerve. Um, and then... Um, Black 13 yeah. and the Scott Pierce series was really born out of what we're seeing unfold now. It was born out of um, researching the dark money and the dark politics of the right and, um, you know, where uh, yeah. there was Russian strategic influence to advance certain people and certain politicians, certain media voices. Yep. Um, and then, you know, the other side of night we've talked about was born from a, a personal question. So... You know, two, the two, the sort of two mm -hmm. thriller series were um, big sort of social themes, and then the other side of night was a really personal. Uh, and I think the next book, my new new book, is a is a blend of the two. It's like it's a per very personal story for me, but it's also um, tackling some very big social themes about justice, who's responsible for what in this world that we live in, because we we like to think that we're the good people. Um, but actually, when you pull it apart, there's no real. No, Nobody's we're the all good doing guys. our bit to create the world in which we live, and we acquiesce to certain things mm -hmm. that actually we don't approve of. You know, and we we look at it, and I I see it a lot. Actually, yeah. people will actually say we should change this. Oh, well, okay, let's let's change it. Then. Well, not me. They they over there should change it. You know, they should change their behavior. And yep. It's not stop. starting with them. And that's why yeah. I'm a great believer in leave yeah. the world better than yeah. you found so, it. Um, so it's an interesting... I think it's going to be a, um, a book that will kind of make people look at themselves a bit, which might be difficult. Uh, um, I think during this time, yeah, I think it will be. 
I think it will hit a nerve. I think it really will, because I think people are... They've gotten used to rebelling against authority and government, and government's mm-hmm. let them down, because, I mean, you know, yeah. the whole parties in Downing yeah. Street, for example, or Trump, you know, Trump yeah. now getting uh, searched in his, yeah. you know, yeah. all these classified... Yeah. Um, who'd ever think Trump espionage? I mean, come on. Well. <laughs> you and me know what he was yeah. like here in Britain before he started yeah. everything over there. Yeah. So, um. none of us thought espionage from Britain yeah. when it came to him. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 listeners is an inside joke that maybe one yeah. day we'll explain. <laughs> We, we maybe shouldn't poke fun at him. <laughs> is, when you put your books together, do you get like a movie kind of sense or are you in that jigsaw bra- bracket of, you know, you're you're literally looking at putting it together? Uh, so, I mean, I actually could show you because I've got an outline here of one. Um, so I will write out chapters. Um, I write, I write you do it like I, I do. So I write out chapters, you know, the key key beats um, yeah you know what what's happening what the characters are going through what they're feeling and all that sort of thing and i write it out i write it out as i would want to read it if i was reading this book you know i try and write it out as i would want to read it um oh there we go great yeah so that's the Zach, that's yeah, exactly how i do it because yeah, i don't know how else yeah, to that's do, it. How I do it so i'm not um <laughs> I'm not big on sort of post-it notes and, and that sort of thing. I just see the book as I w- would want to read it and, and then write it out. Yeah. I get confused with the people that have, like, the big whiteboards, you know? And then it's, like, one colour is for one character and another colour for another. And I'm thinking, that to me just looks like yeah. I mean, art, I... you know? But I, yeah. get, I get the point of it, because then that way yeah. you don't forget the dog's name. But it has to be distracting, standing up all I mean, the time I, I and, think, yeah, and writing say, that um, in. Yeah, whatever works for you. You know, whatever works for you to give you yeah. the best outcome. Um, some people hate plotting in advance and they'll just mm-hmm. go seat of the pants. Um, uh, some people do these huge whiteboards with post-it notes and other people use index cards. And then there are people like us who write out, you know, chapters and... Whatever works for you, whatever you feel most comfortable. At least with that, though, you can take it anywhere you want. Yeah. You, if you get stuck, you can yeah. at least go back in your notes and say, "Okay, the last point yeah. I was at was there, so I need to get to." He- it's yeah. easier to break it down, well, I, mean, I think, in a way, because you're. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, this is the best way to work. Um, but I used to write without having an outline and actually change to having an outline for back then. So that was my fourth book. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think it works much better for me. Will I change again? I don't know. You know, but I think whatever works. No, I, yeah, because it's, we evolve. It's, yeah. it's also what you're comfortable with is going to give you the confidence that from that ease and that comfort comes the confidence to just reach yeah. those higher places. And so I think whatever works for you, whatever you feel most comfortable with, go with that. And then hopefully you'll get the confidence to go and then push yourself to those, um, you know, better qualities. 
I completely agree. However, the only downside to you in these plan is when a partner accidentally loses your notebook and you're midway through a book. That's my no. situation right now. Mm-hmm. He didn't just lose the book I'm writing. No, no, no. He lost 30 books in that notepad. Wow. Yeah. Feel sorry wow. for me just a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I do. I can... I mean, I when I'm actually working on a book, I have a place where I put all of the finished books because I write the whole book by hand as well. I write everything yep. by hand. So I have a place where yeah. I put them. But when I'm working on the book, I carry it around with me all the time, wherever I go. So I'm See, like the bodyguard. I was doing the bodyguard that, to that too, book. yeah. I will never leave it. So it's like a period of, what, four or five months, I have this thing with me the whole time. Mm-hmm. And my mistake was I fell asleep, no. he picked up the book, and he put it somewhere, and we have no never way. been able to find it. Mm-hmm. This is like I was moving no house at the time as well. So, I have no idea if he's yeah. lost it in the move, or he didn't pack it. So yeah, I have to try, at some point, I have to try and remember all of it so I can finish it. Um, and of course, I, I I just, I have no idea wow. how I'm going to do that. But, uh, yeah. This is why I need an office with a door yeah. that locks. So that nothing else goes wrong about I'll, I'll refrain from any comment on that, See? but it would traumatize me, I have to say. I think it would traumatize yeah. most writers. Um, yeah. So which character for you would you say has stayed with you the most? Like, you haven't quite shook That I've created yeah. or somebody else has created? That you've created. Uh, I think I really... Um, uh, uh, David Asher, the father who writes The Other Side of Night, the perspective, um, yeah. I think is, a, is actually... Even though he's not the main character in the novel, I think he's an absolutely fascinating character. And what he goes through in the book and where he ends up and everything, I think is yeah. Just uh, he plays an I I think he plays yeah. a pivotal yep. role, but he's a, yeah, an understated pivotal. I, I just think role, the you know? emotional conflict that's inherent in where he ends up in the book is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, you kind of think is it a happy ending, is it a sad ending? And you never really resolve that because there's just a built conflict in what happens yeah. to him. So I think for, for me, he's the one, particularly as a father, you kind of think God, that's a really difficult situation to, to be in. So And I think a lot of the readers are going to stick you in that role because it's going to be almost that feeling of, yeah. well, is it actually Adam that's in this book or is it yeah. is it a new character? I think I think you will have that pull with the readers of you know, is this is this yeah. actually David or is this Adam? Is this a, a secret story Adam's never told anybody that's yeah. just come yeah, out? Yeah, no, so, uh, so for me, that's the one that I think sticks, sticks with me. So is there a character you wish you could have written in more my, about? In my books, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
There's a character from uh, um, the Pendulum trilogy uh, called Danny, who is a sort of London wide boy. He's loosely inspired by my best friend that I you know, grew up with. And I just think he was a lot of fun to write. He was just so outrageous and brave and brash and uh, resourceful and intelligent. Do you think we'll see more of him in the future? Um, But uh, at the moment, no. I mean, I've got the next sort of two, three books planned out. So I'm I'm stacked, as they say. What techniques have you found helpful, and which one did you wish you had never tried? Uh, For writing. Yeah. So uh, techniques, I mean... The things that I found most helpful, uh, if you go onto wordplayer.com, which is Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio's website, which is aimed at screenwriting, it has tons of tips just on story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, you know, they say build, start with a page, go to three, go to five, you know, then go to your chapter, you know, go to your sort of beat sheet, mm-hmm. then your fuller outline, and build. Because at each stage, when you're wrangling a story, um, you know, working with a page is a lot easier than working with three pages. Working with three pages is easier, you know. So at each stage, you can make changes, you can temper it and build the conflict, the character, the story, the plot, everything as you're um, increasing the volume of work. And so when I hear of authors that have, you know, had to rewrite 60,000 words, that's Right. It's a I've been there. You're wrangling so much. It is. And so yep. I always say to people, do as much work as you can in the small, in the little bits of work up front. Yeah. You know? So you're not crying into your cereal the next day. <laughs> words is just, it's horrifying because you have to hold so much information together. You have to, you know, think about, okay, if I make this change here, I've got to make these changes here. You, you know, there's so much upstream and downstream thinking. But I would much rather do that, you know, up front. So that's, I think, one of the big useful techniques that I've learned is to, um, you know, to, to do that. I think, uh, which technique do I wish I'd never um, tried? I think probably um, writing mm-hmm. without planning. <laughs> um, because I, I... Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah I that's mine too. the books were much harder than they would have been if I'd actually sat down and plotted them out um, so I think yeah that's probably it for me for me like I created an entire world based off of a disabled character right. in a fantasy novel which it let's right. let's face it it's not right. done it's not done and I got so fixated on the world that I wish right. I'd spent more time plotting the right. story itself because to me the magic of the world had just sort yeah. of sucked me and I I almost forgot that story and I when I think back on Dragon she is a disabled character but she doesn't know she is so to her she's just a normal kid but then they see that you know I have it as a creeping illness that's undiagnosed so it's like 
there's the good side of her and then there's this, the part when it dis, sort of breaks her down and makes her disabled and makes her have to rely on other people um and it it's never i it's never been picked up but i think if i am doing another rewrite on it but i think once that next rewrite is done it could be a really positively placed story mm. for changing things and before rewriting it this time, I did sit and I I did cry a little bit and I went through it and I plotted it out so that I wouldn't get sucked yeah. into that world of description. And that's the problem with me is I do like to yeah. make everything three D. So like you're you're completely absorbed in. So like you're stepping through that door in and then that's you stuck till the end of the story. Um, so yeah, that, that I wish I had done that first. Yeah. rather than just run with it um but what i don't know if it was a compliment or an insult but they turned around and said it was too much like um the, uh, the book dragon yeah. e-dragon or something um and i was just like really the lead of that's a disabled child don't know about that one we'll see but I think I think stories like that can have a positive maybe impact on my goal is yeah. to to reduce bullying yeah. for disabled children. So maybe, you know, with that I can achieve a little bit of a step forward. We'll we'll have to wait and see. So moving into the life of Adam, what's the first thing you do when you need to de stress from editing and writing and life and kids? Uh, to de stress I actually go to the beach. Yeah. Oh, okay. Even even in the cold in winter the time. Yeah. Oh yes, I forgot yeah, you moved to some year climate. Year in October, um, but I also go there to work as well. So and actually, it's the place I'm most productive um, because I have no distractions. I just sit there in front of the ocean and write. Um, but yeah, it's a yeah. you know that's where I go to de-stress. Um, either that or I'll go for a run or do some time on the cross trainer and do a bit of exercise but um, usually see I don't get that I don't get how that works because for me like if I'm exercising my mind's focused on you know yeah. really getting in the reps and really getting in the stuff so for me it's no, actually no, stressful just... to do because <laughs> I get so no, caught no, up in the, the whole just, you know, just you know go running or um, go on the cross trainer or whatever but usually yeah to de-stress I'll just go to the beach I love it there what hobbies do you enjoy and which ones do you wish you could explore more uh, if you I had love the rock time climbing, um, and that's something that we haven't done since we got here um, I've been climbing for you know over 20 years um, absolutely love it yeah hopefully ropes. with ropes yeah, well, and um, not you know, freestanding you don't use any ropes but yeah leaf climbing And before COVID hit, I was getting quite good. Um, I was actually able to do, uh, you know, horizontal cave climbing on the roof of the lake. Getting quite All right, yeah, yeah. But there's not much uh, in the way of climbing scene um, here in Mauritius. But we're, we're trying to remedy that at the moment because, you know, our middle son is a really exceptionally good climber. So we want to try and make sure he's got the facilities. So climbing, um, I love skiing skiing here so uh, you know yeah holidays, holidays. <laughs> I, I, I you know I kind of I feel 
conflicted because I don't want to be one of those people that say you need to change and then jumps on a plane and does thousands of air miles when the planet is burning around us. Uh, so I'm kind of trying to be yeah, very true. thoughtful, mindful of my footprint. It's yeah, it's so it's so weird that you're describing that because I was thinking of California because you've got the rock scene there. You've got, you yeah. know, you can drive up into the mountains yeah. and you've got the snow and you've got that kind of thing. And in fact, actually, in the mountains, yeah. you've got some incredible yeah. rock climbing that's never, never done. So you know, if you're concerned yeah. about foot pattern, yeah, that that well, might be a place to consider. Them. We lived there for a little while, and I was going back and forth for a while um, early on uh, when I was doing. It's a lovely part of the world, but I think America is a strange place now. Um, yeah, it is yeah, very strange. Cool. I, yeah, I, like I will give you that. Of, uh, of paradise where we are at the moment, and then the um, the other thing I like doing is sailing, and there's loads of sailing here. So, um, nice. Yeah, you're talking to somebody who's been oh, sailing brilliant. boats oh, since she course. was eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. I actually learned how right. to hop where a boat from my grandfather Brilliant. when I was 10. Because he was a smuggler and he thought that it was a, it was a skill I had to oh, know. Um, the heroin smugglers around mm -hmm. here, Yeah, so whenever I got drunk, I would go hopping Fantastic. on boats. So, yeah, my dad had a lot of panic yeah. attacks. He really did um, because he never quite knew what I was yeah. or what I was up to. Um, so, yeah, my grandfather had a lot to answer for. Useful skill. So, yeah, uh, he went from merchant, uh, ma yeah. merchant navyman wow. to smuggler. Yeah. That's quite a jump. That was his retirement plan. Amazing. I thought it was yeah. so funny. That's his retirement plan. So do you try crafts? Like, do you do creative stuff that's completely separate from the writing world? I always say it's a good way to clear the tubes um, and sort of hit that, that refresh yeah, I mean, button for the power. Uh, but never anything um, serious. I used to want to learn to play the guitar. As in, I had a guitar and was trying to learn to play it, but never had the time to sit down with it. Um, so uh, creatively, yeah. I mean, the thing that I do that is my job and I love and helps me relax is write. It's just, it is, uh, you know, I live for yeah. it. So it's, it's immersive and all-encompassing and it's my joy and it's my passion. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same. Yeah, I'm the same, but for me, like, I can write, and if I'm in a series, I have to find another way mm. to take a creative step out, so that I can then go on and write something else that isn't tainted yeah. from the series I was writing before. So I'll pick up cross-stitch, or I will go and paint something, or I will try to find mm. something else that I can do to just clear the palette and kind of get yeah. me into that zone of writing something um, else um yeah my agent hates it because <laughs> she'll be like well what are you working on and i'll be like oh, well yeah. i did a sample for my mom or you know whatever 
Um, and then she'd be like, how's the book going? And I'll be like, yeah, it's going really well. I've also written another series, but, <laughs> you know, because distraction is, for me, it's not distraction, it's I don't like to end yeah. series because I don't like saying goodbye to the characters, because for me, it's like you're closing yeah. the door and that's it. And I hate that. I, I just can't, I can't stand that idea. So, yeah, the last chapter is always the hardest for me. So I myself have a long-term illness that makes me slow down and appreciate the day. What would you say makes you slow down and smell the roses and the flowers? Nothing and... happens fast on a tropical island. You have to just... It's part of life. That's very so, true. You know, um, the, the house we live in is, is completely open to the elements during the day. So the entire house kind of opens up and you just have nature all around you the whole time. Um, if this was happening in the daytime, you would have the constant chorus of birds, um, you know, making a noise around yep. us. Uh, and so having nature so close to you and being in nature, you can't help but pay attention. And it does, you know, you'll sort of see your beautiful bird or something and just, wow, you know, and you find you've been watching it hop around the garden or fly up into the mango trees and stuff. Um, so it's very... You've yeah, lost really an hour or something, yeah. Do things uh, quickly here, and there's so much sort of beauty, and the sky's so blue usually, and yeah, you just find everything's a, a slower pace of, of life. And I was talking to someone today actually who was saying, you know, some people really struggle with it. They come here from Europe and they just cannot cope with the shift down of gears in terms of, you know, the pacing that people yeah. just expect from life in Europe very different to mm-hmm. what it's like uh, that's one thing I, I can actually appreciate because in Shetland everything yeah. is snail pace because you've yeah. got to wait for ferries yeah. and planes and you know um, so when I went back up my husband struggled because it is mm-hmm. such a huge change and totally different life but it, I missed if I could be somewhere that I could get the medical care that I need, but have the slower-paced life, that would be ideal for me. Have not found that place yet, but that would be yeah. like that's the dream for me is to find somewhere that's sunny, medical care's decent, and I can write my stuff and just yeah, just chill and be me. Um, but yeah, like I get that, and that's the thing. I the problem is in Shetland, the right. wildlife likes to come into the house. Well, we have that. Yeah. Suicidal sheep is a thing. Well, today I had a scorpion crawl across my knee. Oh, yeah, that so would have scared the crap out of me. Um, uh, I put, a, I posted a photo of it on um, on Twitter. Yeah, because I caught it and put it, in, you know, put it under the mask. How did you, like, were you not scared to kind of try and pick that up? I didn't see it, and I just brushed it thinking it was a spider or something. And when I brushed it, it sort of flew up and landed on my thigh. And I looked down at my shorts, and I was like, oh, Oh. there's a scorpion. And I jumped up, and it landed on the sofa and kind of, you know, I think it was maybe shocked. It was a bit stunned. So I just popped a glass over it and a piece of paper, um, like you would a spider, put it on the table. I was like, oh. Scorpion, it is a scorpion. That's an, yeah. Um, and then we, we didn't. Yeah. 
That was lucky because I could have got stung with that. In the end, we put it in a Tupperware box and took it far away from our house into the wilderness and let it go because I didn't want to kill it. You know, for all the murder and mayhem that I write about, I don't like killing things. I prefer not. No, no, I get that. In in Shetland, we usually during the summer will open all the windows of the house up. And the only problem with that is the birds can't tell what's house and what's not. So you end up, like, you can leave the house for five minutes, come back, and there's, like, five sparrows yeah. in your living room. But yeah. the only problem with that is they crap everywhere. So you got to try and get them back out without yeah. them crapping everywhere. <laughs> and they usually only want to go out the one window. So there's a lot of, like, you know... Closing yeah. when you know closing blinds and uh, uh, it's, it's a nightmare, especially when they yeah. fall down the chimney, and then you've got to get them yeah. out the fire, but without yeah. startling them too much. Yeah. So, my, in fact, my my parents were away at my wedding, and they came home, and a bird had fallen through the fire, and my dad had left the door open, and it had gotten out into the house, and it had died in the house because it couldn't get out. And it, it just, everything had to be cleaned. Yeah, like, sure. the whole house. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I could not imagine coming home to that. Like, you you know, you've got off a boat at 7 o'clock in the morning, you finally get into yeah. the house, and that's what you're met with. And the worst thing for my dad was he had to go find the dead bird. So that was his job. <laughs> and he's just like, it was upstairs in one of the bedrooms. But it was just, it was devastation everywhere. And it took them so long to get it clean. But yeah, like, I would love that just to be able to have that one with nature, but I would mm. still like to keep it outside the house. Yeah. You know? I could almost imagine you trying to chase well, a bird out there. They, <laughs> they, the they fly out again. The house is so open, it's not even, it's hard to describe the kind of, the, the, got these big shutters and they just open up the walls just open up so the house is just completely open it's like just having a roof over you wow so uh, it's quite common for houses here you just yeah everything all the houses here are really open so animals come in and out yeah Yeah, with your heat though yeah Yeah, it would probably need to be wouldn't it yeah yeah the other thing that i got used to in shetland was cyclones yes absolutely. i don't know if you get those there is nothing more yeah, intimidating than seeing one of those so coming had, at you. Uh, we had three this year. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had six wow. two years ago that we could see from the the windows. And we had the orcas that came in. Um, yeah, watching them butcher the seals, not my thing. But they are really beautiful to see. And that was the great thing. Like, we had our first ever polar bear landed in Shetland two years ago. And all of the islanders crapped themselves. Because yeah. this big thing just appeared one day. Just walking wow. down the street, quite the thing. And they're all freaking out and going and all the. And that's the thing about Shetland. It yep. is so cold. And mm. the winters are so long. That you kind of... It makes me appreciate the sun when I get it. So yeah, I uh, I love the sound oh, of your absolutely. your place. It does. That's that's obviously like a dream. 
Where's your favorite place to curl up during the day to read? Do you have like a spot in the garden, a, or um, do you have a reader's nook? Where do you like to go? There's a particular chair that I like on the veranda, um, just looking out of the garden. Yeah, oh, I, I like okay. to sort of sit there and read and have a cup of coffee. And, yeah. I think we all need that one spot to go to. It's just, house, you know. You know. Well, actually, in this really? house at the moment, I don't, and I miss it because I used to have a spot next to the fire at my parents, and you know the snow could be falling down outside, and you'd have the warm fire, and you'd have a really good, yeah, whatever book because I read everything, and a blanket, and that was me. I'd be happy, but we've moved into kind of like a small flat because we're in process of trying to find a place that's our own, and it's just too small, so you feel all kind of cramped in a bit, but. Yeah, that's the goal, is to find somewhere that's just just mm. perfect for me and my partner. Um, so, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a good thing. So, on to the last portion of the podcast, you'll be glad to hear, is the word game. So, I'm going to give you a word, and you tie it to the first book that comes to your mind. Okay. And there is a theme to this. It is where I would imagine meeting you right. in an mm-hmm. ideal writer's world. So for you, I imagined meeting you on an English beach, walking along, and we're having some sort of weird okay. pets and author day, um, which no, sounds a bit no, bizarre, I know, there. but I could actually imagine well, us authors one, taking one our pets our, to our something. One of our favourite places to go was uh, the beach at Aberdoffey in um, Wales, and obviously we've got, oh, well, yeah. we've got two dogs now, but then, yeah. then we had a, a, an English Springer Spaniel, so, you know, and we would take him for walks along the beach and you know so yeah absolutely i can see that happening yeah Yeah. it's it's kind of a fun thing yeah yeah well your first word is kittens kittens oh my god do do people ever go blank like completely freeze up yeah, I usually have words that I can, I always have novels I can throw in. So when people get stuck, I yeah, uh, I throw what? them a lifeline occasionally. This is terrible. It's not even a novel. I'm now seeing the kittens book that my um, youngest son read when he was like in year, maybe in reception in primary school, and it's a tortoiseshell gray and black kitten. And yep. The book is called Kittens, and it's a ladybird. Yeah. Oh I God. remember it, I yeah. Can't do any better yeah. than that. <laughs> but that's the whole point of this game is to have a bit of fun and yeah, you will not you believe go. the that's answers that come out. It's, it's, it's that yeah. Okay. The next one's a bit dogs. harder, it's oh dogs. You can see why people actually get nervous about now this all game, now, can't you? That picture of the dog smoking and playing poker, right? But I can't. So now it's making me think of um, Raymond Chandler novels, right? It's making me think. Of, yeah, yeah, the big. Well, there you go. Um, that works. Yeah. yeah. I actually thought yeah, you were going to say know, spot the no, dog. You know the spot yeah, so the dog books. The thought <laughs> I've gone from smoking, card playing dogs to the real. Noir detective. Uh, ah, I'm getting this now. I'm getting the hang. Still, there you right, go. Let's go. Barking. Oh, 
Oh, now this is a crazy one. I'm going to go um, uh, last exit to Brooklyn. Um, and and that's, oh, okay. that's because I've gone Ellen Barkin, Angelica Houston. And I don't know why, but there we go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is the fun of the game because you just, you never know what's going to come out and then you might actually find a book. Yeah. Oh, I've not read that in a really long time. Yeah. I'm going to go read that or, you know, it's, it's fun that way. Okay. Oh, Clouds. I threw an easy one in there for you. Lapping Lapping waves. waves. Uh, you know, I'm going to actually go for another David Mitchell, Number Nine Dream, um, because the uh, okay. main character comes from a tiny island um, off the coast of uh, mainland Japan, and uh, the loses his sister to the sea. Um, yeah. So. Ah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. go with that Number Nine Dream. Heartbeats. Mm, right. So I'm going to go with a really fringe book called The Henayman Sequela. Um, 1970s. Oh, okay. An amazing thriller. So underrated. Um, and it's about... Uh, actually, it's about a twin who is hunted because his twin brother um, has been in an accident and, and the powers that be need to save him so they need to harvest the twins the organs from the twin rain so I'm going to go uh, outlandish here corner of prophecy and the whole Belgariad Serious, because I'm taking the rain as okay. the rain king. Um, so I'm cheating. Ah, I'm cheating. okay. Rather uh, than the rain, rain that falls from the sky, sky. right? So okay. Cheating. But uh, yeah, that was a book that I loved as a as a as a teenager. Um, that that whole series, and you know, reread them to our daughter a few years ago. Last word. Thunder. Thunder. Uh, I'm going to go with um, A Rage in Harlem, actually. Uh, Chester Himes, um, Graeme Digger Jones, and uh, Ed Coffin Johnson, two detectives in there. And the way I've got there is Kung Fu Fighting. Thunder and Lightning are almost Kung Fu Fighting. And it kind of makes me think of riots going on, um, you know, in New York. Yep. Hot summer. Um, and to me, they're kind of, those, his, his writing is so hard-boiled and so gritty and the characters are so funny and violent and it's just, just amazing writing, particularly when you contextualize it and how hard his life was and what the climate was in America when he was writing. So... That, that's yeah. 
the one that I thought when you said that is if you tried oh, M.W. Yeah. Craven's yeah. series. Yeah. Yeah. He always comes to mind when I think of like thunder yeah. and I think of violence and I think of that comedy yeah. element. He really stands out to me. Um, yeah. He's actually been on the show, so I think that's another reason that, that he stands out for me because he, he actually loved it. But he was like you. He had that first moment of when we started the game. He's like, like, oh, I'm stuck kind of thing. So yeah. I did throw him a couple of lifelines. I didn't need to do for you. So no. you scored higher than him. No, but it's, it's a good fun really, game, like a dinner party yeah. game. See if you've got that's readers and stuff game. over. Yeah, You'd be surprised the answers see, that comes yeah, out. People do word association, but actually tying it to books is really uh, makes you think. Yeah, and it makes you think, oh, yeah. I actually fancy reading that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It kind of draws that out. And especially if somebody turns around yeah. and says, well, why did you choose that? Yeah. It kind of adds that extra layer. I have not started doing that yet, but I might in the future that's start good. adding that that's question good. in. Really so, fun. Well, it's been an honor to have you on today. And I really hope you'll come back I when you're getting you, ready yeah. to leash your next one. Yeah, and we can have a bit more of a chat. Um, no, well, and I hope you've really enjoyed yourself. Thank you for putting so much effort into preparing, and yeah, it's been fun. It's been really good. Yeah, and that's the whole point of this. It's just a chance to yeah, actually have lovely. some fun well, while you're doing you so media. Much. Thank you for having me on, and um, yeah, I look forward to coming back. Sounds good. And after that great conversation uh, with Andy there, I am so deeply honoured that they sent me, um, his publisher obviously, his arc for The Other Side of Night, which is the book um, he was on promoting today. And I get to talk to you about the review. And this is really special to me because I, I didn't know Andy's work um, very deeply. I didn't, you know, I'd seen advertisements for it and it looked really cool. And then I got that opportunity to read his work. And um, so this is what I thought. I'm going to, there's no spoilers. There's nothing in it. There's going to give the story away. So don't feel like you have to skip this because I promise you, it. you know, I'm not going to do that. So the journey of emotion to crime to science is just perfectly written. I mean, I was blown away every step of the way. I just thought, wow, what, what passion and what pride he's put into this. You could feel it coming through the page and grabbing you by the throat and saying, you, you know, this is a, this is a story. This is something special. There's not a misstep or a trick not done in this novel. Each character grows and you feel like you're growing with them. You feel like this is a part of the journey that you can actually endure. Like you want to see where this is going to go. You get excited about where this is going to go and the things that we're going to experience. And I got the strength of how just one question could spark such an incredible book. A question that we might have asked ourselves our parents at one point or not or another in our lives and I think that makes it even more special and amazing and I feel honoured to have had that opportunity to dive into emotions and in areas that I would never have looked into uh, if it hadn't been for his work.
Without giving too much away, I have to say this book breaks your heart, puts it back together, and you will have crying happy tears by the end. There is so much to experience here. You will have, you will just need time to, to curl up with a good cup of tea or a glass of wine and just experience this story for what it is and to write it to the very end. It's not going to disappoint and the twist he is placed at the later stages of the book will have you biting your nails, you'll be excited, you'll be upset, you will feel for the characters. You will just feel like you are on the roller coaster of your life. For me, Andy Handy has become the new favourite author I've discovered in 2022 and I can't sing the praises high enough about this book and the, the hard work that he's poured into it. It is a 5 out of 5 read and a must preach to all friends and family so that they can experience this great wonder. I know I will be and I'm delighted that I'm able to tell all of you on the podcast today and his book came out today so don't delay, get on Amazon, go to Waterstones, go to Waterstones website, whatever place you go for books, go there today and get your copy. You will not regret it.